You are listening to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast with Monica Louie, episode number 47. Welcome to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast, where we help online entrepreneurs grow their influence, amplify their impact, and scale their businesses all the way to seven figures. And now, here's your host, Monica Louie. Hey, hey, thank you so much for joining me for the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. I'm Monica Louie, and I hope that you and your family are staying safe and healthy. As of the recording of this podcast, the world is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, and last week's episode was my thoughts and answers to some questions about how to deal with this while running an online business. I've received a lot of great feedback about that episode, so if you haven't listened to that one yet, I encourage you to do so if you are having questions such as, should we stop marketing right now? Should we be running Facebook ads? It's short and to the point, and you can find it at monicalouie.com slash 46. In that episode and the show notes of that episode, I shared a bunch of helpful resources. And I also shared that I've been so inspired by the generosity of so many that I've decided to offer my introductory course, Five Days to Profitable Facebook Ads for free for a limited time. It's a $79 value, and I know that there are a lot of people interested in learning Facebook ads, and a lot of us have extra time on our hands right now. So if you're ready to dive into how to create profitable Facebook ads, consider this a gift from me. Just go to monicalouie.com slash five-day course and enter code BEKIND, all one word. In today's episode, I'm sharing my interview with an entrepreneur who's built a seven-figure online business in just three years. He's a super smart guy, and while we definitely talk a lot about how he built his business so quickly, he and I also have a super relevant discussion about whether or not we're able to recession-proof our businesses. In this interview, he shares the changes he's making in light of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the potential recession that seems inevitable. And I think this conversation is going to be super helpful to you as you plan how you're going to navigate the upcoming months, so I can't wait for you to hear it. My guest today is Travis Hornsby. Travis is a speaker and the founder of Student Loan Planner, which he launched after helping his physician wife navigate ridiculously complex student loan repayment decisions. To date, Student Loan Planner has consulted on over $865 million in student debt. Travis is a chartered financial analyst and brings his background as a former bond trader trading billions of dollars. Trying to solve the student loan crisis brought him out of his first retirement at the age of 25. He brings that same intensity to analyzing the best repayment paths for graduate degree professionals with six figures of student debt. Travis and his team have helped over 3,400 clients save over $158 million on their student loans, and he's been featured in U.S. News, Business Insider, Forbes, Huffington Post, Rolling Stone, Choose FI, Bigger Pockets Money, and more. And... He's here with us today, so let's get right into the interview. But before we dive in, I want to make sure you know that you can find all the links and resources that are mentioned in today's episode at monicalouie.com slash 47. That's M-O-N-I-C-A-L-O-U-I-E dot com slash the number 47. All right, here's my interview with Travis Hornsby from studentloanplanner.com. Hey, Travis, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm super excited for this conversation. Me too, Monica. Great to be here. All right. So first of all, um, can you please share who you are and what you do? Just share a little bit about your business and what you guys do. 
Yeah. So we, we help people that have a huge student loan debt figure out the best way to pay it back. You know, in terms of what does that mean? We have basically three services. We have our consult service, which is us making plans for people. It's like one-on-one coaching. And then the other part is we have an, a big affiliate business where we connect people with, you know, refinancing student loan deals and, and we try to be a price leader. So we try to get people the, the best deal and we take lower commissions than other people do. And then the third part is we have online courses for people to learn how to invest if they have huge student loan debt. So we're very, very focused around this idea of somebody that owes more than 50000 of student loan debt. We want to be the world's best resource for that specific individual. That's awesome. Well, I mean, there's such a huge need for that. Um, so thank you for, for all that you do. I'd love to hear how you got into this. And did you always, like, was this always the plan to build a resource? And how did this even come about? So, so I, I started off doing something I think a lot of people do, which was basically doing something that's super not focused and generic. So I have this blog called millennialmoolah.com that, that anybody can look at. It's, it's kind of hilariously bad. Um, and I did that for like a year. Basically, I used to be a bond trader before that. So I was a bond trader, traded billions of dollars in bonds for one of the world's largest investment companies and just didn't feel passionate about it. You know, like I just missed getting to talk to people and not having, you know, just trading be my only thing that I was doing. And so I thought, well, I want to make a change. And I discovered the the financial independence movement kind of in 2012 and decided, well, that should apply to me. I should try to do this. And so I discovered it at 22. And then by 25, I retired early. Um, it, it wasn't like a intentional thing where like, I'm never going to work again for sure. It was just like, a have got enough to not work for a really long time. So I'm just going to stop. And I traveled the world, saw about like 40 countries and I was blogging like this again, this just generic personal finance blog. And then like right before I left, I actually met the woman who's now my wife and she had a bunch of student loan debt. So now the, you know, the, the dots are starting to get connected, right? <laughs> um, so she had a bunch of student loan debt and she was trying to figure out how to pay it back. And I was a bond trader with all this Excel modeling skill and I built something for her and she encouraged me to share it with other people. And then that got shared on Business Insider. And then that got like 500,000 views and launched, you know, the business in a big way because I had just been making plans for friends before that. That's how things really kind of launched. And I just started doing content marketing around student loans since then. I'm sure we'll get into a lot more details than that. Well, I love how it just, I mean, just kind of happened organically out of a need where I feel like a lot of businesses, including my own, just evolve from, you know, that need and figuring things out. And then more people are like, hey, I need that. I need your help with that. So that's a really cool story. And so now, I mean, has your wife, um, have you guys paid off all of her student loans? Is that where you guys are now? Yeah, we have. And, you know, the, the thing that happened to her, though, is she should have not paid it off. She should have been able to go for your loan forgiveness with this thick program called public service loan forgiveness, which is this plan where if you work for a not-for-profit or government employer, you pay for 10 years based on your income. And then the, the balance is supposed to be forgiven tax-free. The problem is, is that didn't happen for us because she got some bad advice. And then, oh, I see. Yeah. So, so then, you know, that bad advice basically costs her like seven years worth of credit towards forgiveness. And, you know, so she could have been three years away from getting her six figure student loans forgiven tax free. But instead, since she got bad advice from her, you know, medical school and people around her, she was actually like not even close to getting it. The impact of that was like the take home pay of an entire year's worth of salary. It was just mind boggling to me that, you know, you could lose a whole year worth of financial work 
just because you got some bad advice from your financial aid office. <laughs> and so that was like the problem that we were trying to solve is just student loans in America are very complicated and there's nobody out there that, well, there's not a lot of people out there at least that specialize in only that. And so I think a big part of growing your business to a big level, you know, you, you kind of, we were talking before you record, you hit the record button and we were saying, this is a group of people that's trying to scale to seven figures. So I guess the advice that I would give there is if you want to scale to seven figures, don't be generic. You know, if you're generic, that's a, a formula for probably low five figures because there's a lot of people out there that do generic things and that's why you never hear about them. And, you know, just the fact that we were super narrow in our focus, like even within student loan borrowers, we weren't trying to help all student loan borrowers. We were only trying to help people with the largest balances, right? So that's how we started. And now we're a little bit more broad than that. That, you know, that would be my suggestion for, for the listeners is to, to keep things super narrow so that you can be known at be, as being the best in the world at something. I love that. I think that's so important too, because I've seen that in my own journey as well, as I started off in the personal finance space. And then my initial clients and round of students uh, were all in the personal finance field because, I mean, that was where my network was. But then also, you know, I really feel like that helped my Facebook ads business take off because um, I knew that niche and I became the go-to person for that space for Facebook ads. So I definitely agree with that. So as you got started, I mean, so you had this blog, but then you decided, it sounds like you decided to create a new blog and start content marketing there at studentloanplanner.com. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Studentloanplanner.com is, is the entire focus right now. The, the old blog is just up for, for lulls, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's just something I occasionally visit just to see how far I've come. Uh, but, but, you know, so studentloanplanner.com, what do we, what do we do? Right. So, I mean, the blogging part, just was all about discipline. Like I was consistently coming out with content, even though not a lot of people were reading, at least I was learning how to do it. You know, I mean, just the, the physical process of just over and over again, putting out content. So I, I, I learned that skill from that. And then with a student loan thing, I finally found something where my skills and the problem that was out there in society kind of matched. And, you know, cause there's like a dime a dozen fire bloggers and my story is not that interesting compared to some of them. Right. You know, I found that the Excel skills that I had with the complexity of student loans, like there was a match there. And then, you know, I went out and started writing specifically, or one of our first articles was actually about veterinarians, because veterinarians were not being talked about at all in the personal finance space, especially with the loan balances that they have, which are frequently, you know, five times as much as their incomes. And so, you know, given that that pain was out there, I just wrote an article that just hit the pain, like, like with a nail on the head kind of thing. And, you know, you'll appreciate this as a Facebook ads expert. This was back in 2016 before the election when Facebook ads was just a lot, you know, kinder place, <laughs> um, easier, easier to, to deal with. And we spent a hundred dollars in Facebook ads and we ended up getting, I want to say like 30 or 40,000, or maybe it was, it was like 20 to 40,000 views on this one article just cause it went viral across wow. the entire veterinary community. Yeah. And now like I can't get anything, you know, approved, you know, because of the algorithms have tightened up so much, especially for student loan stuff. That's not, refinancing. So, so anyways, that, that like got me so many veterinarian clients and initially we undercharged and overdelivered. So, um, in other words, you know, we were charging a lot less than we currently charge. We charged, I think like a hundred or 150 bucks for a consult. And we were finding people projected savings that were in the mid five figures on average. So we were finding enormous, you know, optimizations that could happen for a very low cost and, and then I thought, well, this works so good for veterinarians. Let me try to do it for dentists. So I, I did the same thing. I just wrote an article 
acknowledging like that a lot of dentists are just victims of bad, you know, financial aid assistance, just not being told how to pay back their loans, even though they have huge balances. And that hit a nerve in that community. And, you know, we put a little bit of Facebook ads behind that and that went kind of viral. And so that, then we had veterinarians and dentists and then I had a, a, then I had like a a path, right? Like then I had a pattern to follow is basically like find a profession that has a bunch of debt, write about them a lot, get Google traffic over time, do a really good job, get busy. Then when we're busy, raise prices, announce you're going to raise prices like way ahead of time to build the demand. And then we got to the point where I couldn't do all of the consults anymore. So that was the point where I brought in my, my first team member. Okay. So yes, I was just about to ask you because you were saying we along the way. So initially it was you writing the content and doing the, the consultations. And so you brought in your first team member at what point? Like how far are we into the journey? Yeah. I mean, probably, probably about a year. You know, if I, if I look at my expenses, I can go back historically and look at it. So my monthly expenses were basically below two to five, two to $5,000 a month. So they were below that until about November of 2017. And I started it in September, 2016. So for about 14 months, I had me and that was it. And the expenses that we were spending money on was like Facebook ads, software, you know, hosting, all those kind of things. So, you know, our expenses were super, super low. And then kind of in late 2017, you know, the first kind of people we, we added on, we added like a kind of a marketing person to help us design some different landing pages and ideas and webinars and stuff like that. We had a, a paid ads person. I think we had maybe like one freelance writer. I, I actually try to remember our freelance writing thing was kind of a disaster <laughs> early on. Like I, I brought in like four or five freelance writers and uh, only one of them ended up being very good. <laughs> and uh, so the rest we like, you know, let go. And then I made a more of a stringent process about who we brought on as freelance writers and then our freelance writing got a lot better when, when we had a process in place. And so like looking historically at our expenses, it looks like in September um, 2018, we had a, a huge jump in our expenses because that's when we brought on a lot of people. And kind of what happened during that time, one of our competitors got acquired, um, Student Loan Hero. Some of people might have heard of it before. So Student Loan Hero got acquired and then we had um, all these people that had a lot of student loan knowledge and expertise that were jobless. You know, we're a lot smaller than them. We weren't able to, you know, hire all of them, but we were able to hire some of them. And our expenses, you know, went up quite a bit in that like twenty late 2018, like two years after starting the business, our annual expenses were up to like 30, 40 grand. I mean, which is a lot more than two to four thousand, you know? So we were, we were spending a lot, lot more but we always had multiple sources of, of income. So even like from the beginning, that's another thing I would tell someone is, is probably do one thing initially and make that your focus to do one thing super well, but then like get to a point where you try to broaden beyond just one thing. And this is super relevant right now with what's going on with COVID-19 um, because right now we're getting killed on our affiliate income uh, just because, you know, the economy is seizing up and people are pulling back and, President Trump just announced he's waiving all interest on federal student loans. So why would you refinance your federal student loan if you could get zero with the government, right? So uh, that's a that was a huge part of our business, and it's virtually gone, you know, overnight for the foreseeable future until this COVID crisis is over. And so thank goodness that we have multiple sources of income, like the courses and the especially the consulting, because it diversifies you, right? So I mean, you can build your seven figure business different ways. Like if you want to go for broke, then you know you do one thing super well 
you know, make it scalable, ad spend behind it. But the thing is, is that can go away. And if you didn't have multiple sources of income, you might be in trouble. That's so true. And yeah, that's something to see that a lot of people are, you know, facing potentially right now. Um, and so I've been thinking about this for quite a while too. And, and, you know, I work with a lot of different clients and students. And so I get to see the ins and outs of a lot of different online businesses. And so one thing that I've been focused on this year is thinking about, you know, how can we in this day and age, like recession proof our businesses? How can we make things a little bit more stable? Is that completely possible? And it probably depends on your niche, right? So, um, you know, a lot of people are going to be looking for resources and Trump's, you know, changes. How do they affect me? You know, how, and so they're going to be going to your blog and looking for, for solutions that way. But I think in different niches, it'll be, it'll be kind of interesting. So that's just something that's been on my mind is, is how do we, kind of stabilize our businesses, have consistent recurring revenue. And um, I think multiple income streams is a huge part of that. Yeah. I mean, this might not be what some people would want to hear, but I don't really believe that you can recession-proof your business and for every business, at least. I mean, some some businesses, sure, right? Like, you know, some things are like recession kind of independent. You know, like if you're an emergency room physician, people are still going to be coming to see you. <laughs> if you're Zoom, right? Like this is kind of like you've, you've have like a inverse correlation with recessions. Like right. this is like a, a great thing for you, right? Like we're, we're doing this recording on zoom. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're going to be making a ton of money because of this. So for, for most people out there, right? Like, and especially in personal finance, like when do people sign up for investing accounts, right? Or, or, you know, when do people book travel, you know, things like when the economy's good, right? So your, your business is going to be somewhat correlated with how the economy's doing. I mean, if you want super stable revenue, then, you know, if you have like, you know, you have like a business where you serve people, that service income is going to be a lot more sticky than, you know, other kinds of income, right? So, I mean, if you're selling digital products or something like that, um, you might still sell some in a, in a recession, but they're going to be lower. So what kind of things can you do? I mean, you want to look for things that people demand more of in recessions. So maybe like if you have like a debt affiliate program, like some sort of like debt restructuring, or if you have, I don't know, different kinds of bank accounts or, you know, products that are around for recessions. I mean, for, for us, it's kind of like the, the, that's our consult service is, is something that's more stable, more demanded, maybe even more so in recessions because people are trying to figure out what to do. Whereas our sort of our stock part of our business. So basically we have two, I think about it like having stock parts of your business and bond parts of your business, right? So our service portion of our business is like the bond portion of our business. And then our, you know, advertising revenue and things like that from affiliates, that's more of our stock part of our business. So if you have both of those, that means that you <laughs> don't have your business closed in the middle of like the worst recession in 12 years. So luckily we have reserves. And that's another thing I would encourage people to have is you might have to make some severe cuts. And it's a lot help, a lot more helpful to have significant reserves and cash, um, you know, and not have everything invested in BTSAX like you know, a lot of the people in the fire movement kind of tell people to do. So I'm a lot more conservative and have a lot more cash maybe than, than some people do. So for a business owner, especially an online business owner, what would you recommend for like how many, you know, months? I know in personal finance world, for personal finances, we should be having at least three to six months of savings in an emergency fund. So what would you suggest for our businesses? I would say the same. I mean, I, I think that there's nothing special about your business other than those expenses don't have to happen. Like, I mean, I guess in your personal life, you can cut a lot of expenses, but you're not going to be able to cut your housing that much unless you bring on roommates or something like, so for, I mean, I guess for, for businesses, it's a little different. Like you don't have to have six months expenses because 
you can cut some of your expenses. Like, so everybody on my team is a contractor. I could cut all of them if I wanted to, but that would be really disruptive and destructive to the value of my business because those people are still bringing in revenue, right? So like that wouldn't make sense to do that. And so I guess the way I look at it is have multiple layers of protection. So in my mind, if I have six months expenses for my business expenses sitting in cash, plus I, I know for sure that my revenues over the next six months will not be zero. I don't know what they'll be. It might be a lot lower, but they're not going to be zero. So that means at a minimum, I have six months runway, but probably I have significantly more than that. And you know, we're already starting to see this a little bit with like venture funded startups and places that were looking for exits. We're seeing, I mean, Sam, I'm just personally seeing a lot of these shut down or be acquired because venture capital is a lot more conservative in here, especially giving capital to businesses that might be a couple years away from realizing profits. It's just one of those things where I think, you know, if you think about your business, like you do your personal finances, then you'll be conservative enough to survive no matter what. That's great advice. So, um, well, that was a great conversation. I appreciate that. So going Super back. Super exciting, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's extremely relevant and important to have this kind of conversation right now. So I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on this. So going back, as you started to scale up your business, um, what were your, do you mind sharing what your revenues were looking like? Because you were sharing your expenses and how those increased. But are you cool with sharing a little bit about like what the revenue side was looking like? Yeah, I can share some. So, I mean, basically, like the first three or four months we were in business. So, 2016, we started in like September or October 2016, right? So, we were, you know, at around like, you know, two to 8,000 a month in revenues. So, like, we were profitable right away. And that was kind of really important to me is like, I think a lot of people are comfortable going profit negative, like, pretty immediately for a while. And for me, it's just like, if you're going to do that, then you better really know what you're doing because like there's so much, I mean, you could, you know, have a venture capital firm do that instead, you know, to finance your negative profit. Like that's that's what they exist for is for that deep loss period when you accelerate and grow really fast. So, I mean, that would be my thing is like, if you're going to bootstrap, like you don't want to have a bunch of negative numbers on the page. What I looked at is, do I have margin. Like for me, I wanted 30% margin to be able to make investments in the business. And when I had that money over and above that level, 30% margin, meaning like uh, my revenues are 10,000, my expenses are seven and I have 3000 profit, right? So I'd have a 30% margin. And if my expenses were 5,000 and I'd have 5,000 of profit, then I would know that I had an extra two grand that I could spend before hitting my 30% margin requirement. So that was the way that I kind of thought about it. And, you know, for 2017, for the full calendar year, I think we had revenues like just under 200,000 and then revenues have a little bit more than doubled each year. So 2018, you know, revenues were probably around like 500,000. 2019 revenues were around a million. And then 2020, uh, before coronavirus, I would have said it would have probably been significantly more than that. But after coronavirus, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be happy if we're still seven-figure business at the end of the year. I think probably we'll, we will be based off of what I'm seeing with people booking consultations. But if you have a guess, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how long this kind of lasts as far as like the quarantine and everything. And then, you know, the repercussions, I think that's hard for anybody to forecast right now. And I feel like, at least in my conversations that I've been having with my team and my network and, and my mastermind group, that it feels kind of like a day-by-day situation at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's certain things that you do right away. Like for me, that was telling my team they're they're all going to get hit with an income reduction. Not because I'm cutting their hourly pay, it's just because we're deferring investments and projects that we might have done 
in a regular time to future months because I want to preserve cash flow, right? So for me, when when you have a really bad economic environment, it's all about runway. Who are those businesses that do really well long-term as the ones that survive? And so, I mean, I don't know, like I haven't gotten a lot of reports from my partners yet, but like, I mean, if the economy got really bad from this coronavirus thing, I know that we would lose a lot of our affiliate relationships. And I know that we would lose a lot of revenue from that. And our expenses last month were like uh, pretty close to 80 grand. So, I mean, if we have 70% of our revenues disappear, then suddenly we're profit negative, right? And we're not hitting our targets. So that's why I'm, I'm basically, I've, you know, I've cut a lot of our, our article orders for like freelance writers. I've like put off some projects that we were going to do in April to May. Unfortunately, we were going to have our first in-person meeting and that's now postponed, <laughs> um, you know, because that was supposed to happen in May and we're, we're abiding by the CDC's recommendation for social distancing. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things where I think there's certain things you do right away and just say like, I think it's really helpful for team members to set expectations low and then beat them. So I kind of told people like, hey, this is like the minimum level that you can expect from us. Like everybody's going to get, you know, four articles this month instead of the usual, you know, eight to tw- eight to 10 or something for the freelance writers. And then, hey, the people that are doing our SEO and stuff like that, we're going to do half the projects for next month. And I'm not making any changes now. I'm making changes for April. And then if we beat my expectations for revenue, then we're going to increase that investment from April to May accordingly. But if we don't hit that, then I've at least made the business more conservative. So like that's what I would maybe suggest to anybody who's trying to grow a large business is you know, yeah, scale, yeah, invest in your business, but do so with like a formula versus just like seat of your pants. I like that a lot. I mean, just be be careful going into the next coming months and forecast low, and then hopefully things will be better than you than you plan for, and then that's when you can make you know more educated decisions after that. Well, it's kind of like psychology. Like your team is like at least our team is a lot of freelancers, right? And so their incomes are already like less stable and stuff, and they make really good wages too. Like we have a lot of people on our team that, you know, we have people on our team that make six figures. Like, you know, you can make a ton of money not having a full-time job if you're good, but Mm -hmm. it's more, it's more about just like setting that expectation for the team that like, Hey, this is like our worst case scenario. And this is what that looks like. And this is what we're planning for. And then when that worst case scenario doesn't happen, everybody's excited, right? Everybody's optimistic again. Everyone's like really stoked because they're like, Oh wow. Like, Maybe the economy is not as bad as we thought it was, right? But, you know, I think you just got to be super conservative and cautious when the economy is like (laughs) a train wreck because you don't know if you're about to get this terrifying email from your number one affiliate partner that's like, hey, sorry, we're suspending the partnership. You know, we've seen a little bit of that, like with some of our partners that are like, hey, please don't promote anymore. Like we're, we're struggling. I mean, we're seeing a little bit of that, just not in mass yet. I just think it's just really an interesting time for all of us to learn together because a lot of us are in our twenties, thirties, forties. We have not really been in position. Most of us running big businesses in the middle of a disastrous economy, right? I mean, 2008, like I I was in college. So, I mean, like it didn't really affect me that much. I mean, I just think, you you know, this is just a a great time to, to learn how to, how to survive in all economic climates. I think so too. So with your team, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of team members, so freelancers, SEO, can you give a breakdown of what your team looks like right now in this moment? Yeah, I would say probably like seven-ish people are dedicated exclusively to content, like blog content specifically, which is is pretty heavy. I mean, the the old thing about 
you know, well, what about YouTube? What about podcasts? Like what about all these other sources of, of traffic? At least for our business, we're very heavy into just the blog presence because it still works. You know, it's, it is kind of a legacy thing. People are always like, oh, the people are going to stop reading blogs. Well, they haven't yet. <laughs> so so we, we probably have like, you know, like about seven people that are de- dedicated to that. We have about two people. Some people wear multiple hats, by the way, but we have two people dedicated to PR and, and pitching and things like getting thought leadership out there. We have five consultants that help me do actual plans for our customers and, uh, off the top of my head, we have a couple more people doing just kind of random things, right? We have a business manager. We have an ads person that we're actually on pause with because of the economy. And then maybe two SEO people that have different backgrounds. One of them is a little bit more like on-page optimization, picking good articles, doing keyword research, that kind of stuff. And then another person is a little bit more backlink strategy. How do we guest post on on stuff? And then we have a couple of people that, that pitch for, for podcasts and manage our podcast as well. And one person that manages YouTube and social. It's pretty spread out. Uh, we have a lot of people, some of them, like I said, doing multiple hats, probably about 20 in total. Very cool. So how did you um, how did you start growing a team? I know you mentioned that you brought on people to help support you about an, a year in. So what did that look like, that growth? Yeah, I mean, like, I made a lot of mistakes hiring people initially, a, lot, a ton of mistakes. Like, I mean, some of those things we got positive results out of and, you know, it, it was, it ended up being a good spend. Like it just, they weren't able to give ideas past a certain point of our growth and some of the money was just totally wasted. And what I realized is you have to do real trial tests with people. Like you have to interview people and 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 then give them a trial project and pay them for it and see how they do before you hire somebody. Cause like, you just don't know a lot of times. And even when you do do those trial projects, even then the person can end up not being a good fit. You just have to be really honest with people. I think that's the key is if something's not going well, by my experience, you got to go with your gut and just have straightforward conversations. And yeah, I would just say over communicate. So for me, you know, initially I didn't know what I was doing. I hired people that were bad fits. We had a lot of turnover but then I got a couple key players that were just really good organizational people where I, my skills were lacking. Like we got an office manager that's fantastic that really loves having expectation setting conversations with team members, loves bringing people on, interviewing them, making sure that they actually did their you know test assignment well. I'm not very well organized. I'm more of like an idea kind of a oriented person. Like I love playing around with spreadsheets or like that's my strength is coming up with an idea and running with it. Not... <laughs> implementation and staying on top of things and making sure projects are getting done. So I think you just have to recognize like if you're lacking in something, you just need to, you know, hire something around you to, um, to fill that gap. And so when I started doing that, we started bringing on people that were actual good fits versus just people that I liked. So that journey is kind of similar to mine where I can definitely see where I've made hiring mistakes is because I didn't know what the right questions were to ask or, you know, how to conduct an interview in the right way or to, what to really look for. But I've definitely learned a lot. And I, I mean, the trial tests, the trial projects that you mentioned, that has been key as well. So you mentioned that you have a very succinct process for bringing on freelancers and freelance writers. Would you mind sharing what that looks like and what's involved in that? Well, a lot of it just depends on our demand. So, I mean, before the cuts or before, you know, the, the interest freeze on student loans, we were probably going for one post a day. And so we have a team of like five freelance writers and we just kind of scale up or down based off of their 
demand for articles, you know, so they have, you know, if they have capacity, we'll give it to one person over another. If we see, you know, everybody gets a minimum number of articles, but then like the people who are doing the best get the most articles. And then, you know, when those folks ask for raises, if we can justify it based on the economics of their articles, like we try to do that. That's generally how we how we do it. Now, when we have a reduction in article count, like we we've had, what we tend to do is is I want to just try to make sure everybody's treated fairly. Like we sort of have this view of versus pitting the freelance writers against one another. It's more of like once you have a minimum level of competence, you're like you're on the team, and you know we're gonna try to make sure everybody has a minimum level of of articles just for stability. Because like freelance writers really value stability because a lot of their clients don't give it to them at all. And from my experience too, freelance writers will be willing to accept more of like a steady rate and a real reasonable per article rate when they know that they can predict that stability from you. You know, we will have, when we have a, a, you know, more articles demanded than we have writers that can supply it, then I'll put out a, just an ad like in our newsletter or on FinCon or I'll ask people to ask people and then we'll get a collection of five to 10 freelance writers, something like that. And we'll have everybody do the same, you know, trial assignment. And then, you know, we might do a second trial assignment and see what we think of their knowledge and expertise and how they did. And then we'll maybe hire one or two people that we think are good. Um, and again, you know, the, the freelance thing, it's just super helpful because then you don't have to pay, you know, $60,000 salaries to people when you don't have that level of demand to justify it yet. So I think growing to a seven-figure business, like you also have to realize like, you know, I mean, this might sound like kind of not great, but like you have to be careful with your expenses and not overpay for what you can afford, right? Because otherwise you're just going to be in a position where your whole business is going to go defunct and you won't be able to pay anybody. Like I said, we're providing really large paychecks to a lot of people, but we're not there. We're not anybody's full-time role really. And that's fine for us. Like if we were trying to scale to an eight-figure business, you know, I might try to bring on some full-time people to have a little bit more stability a little bit more focus and, and dedication, but we're not to that point yet, right? Like I would like to be close to an eight-figure business before we make that switch. And so that's why we've made the choice to go more like freelance specific contractor arrangements with, with who, you know, how we work with people. That's very interesting because I've been having that conversation around, you know, is it better to have contractors right now at this stage of business or is it better to like maybe bring on one or two full-time employees or W-2 employees? And so it sounds like for your business, at least you're looking for that longer term stability. Yeah. Well, I mean, like it just depends on what you want to do. Like if you're trying to go for venture capital growth at all costs, you want W-2 people because you're going to get super hyper-focused people that are looking for an exit in like five years or four years, right? And they're going to be totally dedicated to making sure that happens because you're going to give them equity. And, you know, that's one path to do it. But that's also a path that like, by definition, you're trying to grow something to, to sell it. And that's just not where I'm at right now in my life. Like I kind of, you know, if I, I didn't have a student loan planner, I'm not really sure exactly what I would do. Maybe, maybe do like affiliate optimizations for like other blog owners that like don't really know how to negotiate and and manage that. Like maybe that would be something I would do, but it, it would be less interesting to me than this because I'm not focused on growing this to sell it right now. I'm able to have more flexibility and, and contractors give it ultimate flexibility, right? Like if I had to come up with money for severance and layoffs, uh, you know, if we had this big economic drop, it's a lot more stressful versus just saying, Hey everyone, we're going to have a 20% income drop approximately until this coronavirus is behind us. And then we're going to get back up to where we were. 
Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So when you, when it comes out to handing out those assignments, what exactly are you giving them? You mentioned you have somebody who does keyword research for you. So can you walk us through what that process looks like? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of SEO firms that will do a content gap analysis for you. I mean, he kind of does that for us on a recurring basis. Basically, just like, what are we not writing about that people are searching? And, you know, there's only so much stuff about student loans that you can write. So once you've written a lot of the stuff that you've already, you know, you've already tackled it, you might want to update articles. So now we're heavily into, we probably update as many articles per month as, as new articles we create, you know, so, so in terms of like deciding who gets what article, I mean, some articles, like we know somebody's better at analyzing survey results, we'll give them that article versus someone else. Sometimes when we don't have a clear idea of who would do the best job with an article, we'll, we'll try to make sure the writers have similar keyword and search volume and we'll assign them different articles, but like with similar, you know, possibilities for success, theoretically. And then we're able to somewhat measure the writers comparatively based off of, you know, them trying to be given equal opportunities to see how much organic traffic they're bringing in to see if their cost is sort of being covered. You can't do that with organic traffic alone, though. You need to know what your conversions are. So, you know, we do have some level of tracking, not as good as some people, but we do know like what conversions are happening on what articles. And so, you know, an article might only bring in a hundred users a month, but it might convert insanely well. So then we could justify paying that writer more than a writer whose articles don't bring in tons of conversions. So that's what we do. We kind of like look at it every six months just for my own sanity um, because I'm not trying to get every last dollar of profit out of the business. I'm just trying to create something that the the Jim Collins has this like flywheel analogy, which is I think a great analogy. It's basically like you want everything to kind of feed as a positive feedback loop into itself. So it's like, you know, you you have, you know, amazing articles, which brings in more traffic, which gets you more, you know, refinancing and consult revenue in our case, which gives you the ability to hire more and better, you know, content writers and order more articles that bring in even more traffic and revenue, which allows you to get even better writers. You know what I mean? So that's like what I mean by the positive like feedback loop. Um, so that's kind of what we're trying to go for. So I, I would be thinking that like in the future, we'll probably invest even more in content to try to make our, our place, you know, our site like the best place for student loan borrowers to get information. So do you give them a like the keyword, the topic and the angle of the article or do they like help come up with pitches on that or really the SEO person is finding that gap? Well, we do it together. So, so he, okay. you know, the SEO person will come up with the keyword volume, like the suggested title, their thoughts on it. I, I put my own thoughts into the description as well. We have an editor, a managing editor who has, you know, an assistant who fleshes out the angle and makes sure that the articles are being fact-checked. And, uh, and then I'll sometimes create Loom videos showing people different things across the internet that they should read before they write the article and telling them in general what I want the article to say. I don't always do that, but uh, but I but I will often do that to try to make sure the article aligns with our editorial kind of goals and what our beliefs are and things like that. And then do the articles have like a word count goal associated with them at all? Yes and no. I mean, you know, we'll tell somebody if it's a short to medium post or if it's a really long post that we want. And we always tell people to cover the content, but don't overwrite just for a word count that we told you to write for. You know, so I think there's a little bit of a conflict of interest when you tell a writer you're going to pay them by the word um, because then they do have an incentive to kind of be wordy, <laughs> obviously. So we tend to prefer just like a flat rate for articles. And for a writer that does want to get paid per word, that's like a very high threshold for me. Like I have to really, really trust 
that writer before we switch to that. So then once the draft is back, um, what is that editing and getting it ready to be published on the blog? What does that process look like? So I would suggest to somebody, do what you enjoy and don't do something you don't. So, I mean, for me, we have it's editing staff that totally takes care of that. I don't look at it at all. I'm so, so glad that I don't have to look at it at all. I mean, I would be very un- unhappy in my life if I had to do all the fact checking and editing just because it's something that I don't enjoy. So we have a, a process through CoSchedule that manages, you know, when things are due, when article fact checking is done, the writers will go through like, you know, one or two rounds of, of um, drafts or updates or revisions. And then it goes to our copy editor who gets it published on the blog. Awesome. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, and then for you also have YouTube and your podcast. And so is there any kind of like coordination of the content calendar of like you're creating a video that's going to go on this blog post that's going to also be published with this podcast episode? Do you do anything like that? So remember I said my organization is not my strong suit, right? So um, so, so the answer is no in the sense of what we do do is we do a podcast episode that we turn into a blog post. So we do do that. Um, so there's a little bit of coordination there. I mean, I'll say that a lot of what I do is just trying to like throw some resources behind different channels to see what might happen, right? So, you know, obviously, you know, back in the day, Facebook was this huge traffic source. And today, unless you have a Facebook group, it's just pathetic, you know, compared to what it used to be. And so I know that any one of those sources could could do that to us. It could be Google search, it could be YouTube, it could be podcast, whatever it is. So that's why I like to maybe even lose money on having some presence everywhere because I just don't know what the next big thing is. It's going to take off and provide a bunch of traffic. And also you need a lot of touch points to convince somebody to buy. So if somebody does see us on Instagram or Pinterest or someplace where we might not have the best presence, but at least we have a presence, it's just multiple touch points. So for us, like we find that the podcast actually converts even better than the blog does. Um, So, I mean, ideally, like you would get more people listening to the podcast over just reading our stuff on the blog, but it's just another way to convert people, right? So, I mean, I've just noticed our our conversions went up a lot when we when we started a podcast just because people get to know you and trust you. That's wonderful. I, I really like that. I, I like that angle because I know a lot of times, especially when it comes to social media, it can be hard to put like a dollar amount of like having my Facebook page or my Instagram profile, you know, provides this kind of ROI for my business. But I like the idea of having a presence everywhere because you never know what's going to drop, <laughs> which right. is going to be out of your control. But then also just knowing that, you know, if people are hanging out on Instagram, that they can find you there and it, it looks like you've got something going on. Well, it's tough because that's, so, you know, unless you're like a, a very solid seven-figure business, like you're talking about brand advertising, if you're going to spend a lot of money without any kind of obvious measures, measurable delivery, you know, in terms of measuring things. So I would say that like, that's why we keep our advertising spend and our, our presence, like the amount of money we're spending to be on all these social platforms. I mean, it, we're not doing like, you know, meet Edgar or something like in terms of just auto scheduling stuff, but we're, we're right. also not, you know, pouring five figures into our social presence uh, every month. You know, I mean, I would say barely four, you know, a little low four figure amount monthly into making sure that we have some sort of decent presence on these platforms. You know, I mean, but if we were a much larger business, then I I probably would hire, you know, somebody for each platform to really focus on it so that we could have more of a brand advertising approach. But you have to be really kind of, I think, bigger to do brand advertising well. Yeah. And I think that's important to keep that in mind that having a presence in multiple places is important, but 
you know, know that you can always scale that and grow those different channels later as your business grows as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we would. I mean, you know, especially if we saw some algorithm change, right? Pinterest becomes the next big thing, or <laughs> I don't know right. what 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 it would be. But uh, but at least we have all these things. If if something if we did have a lot more revenue, we wanted to experiment with different growth pl- places. That at least it already exists. So I'm curious. I mean, we've talked about the next few months and and how you're hedging bets there for you know the unknown. But before all of this happens, yeah. what was the plan for 2020 and continuing to grow some loan planner? Well, it was pretty cool to see the business like doubling or tripling in revenue every year. You know, I mean, so far there hasn't been a year where that hasn't happened. What that means, I think, is you just do more and more of what you do well. You know, we were dropping significant amount of money on Google ad spend, doing even more content creation than we had ever done, you know, just continuing to grow, you know, everything that we've done with adding people to the consultant team, incentivizing them to create content. So I'm not the face of the business there as well, you know, also getting involved in other product lines. So we got involved in like private student loans. We also got involved in practice loans with some major lenders so those are revenue sources that might not show revenue in the short run, but in the long run, they might show significant revenue. So we're, we're basically, our, our strategy on the affiliate front is, you know, we want to be able to get to the point where we have the best deal on the internet or else why would we want to be involved in that business line? That's kind of like my overall plan for affiliate marketing. So it's like, well, let's take a affiliate channel like Practice Loans that has never had great transparency into referral fees that are paid. Basically, it's this like, very old school model where like, you know, a broker can't pay this big commission and not disclose it, or at least, you know, that's how it was in the past. So it's like, okay, well, what if we ask if we can give people gift cards, you know, for signing up for like buying a dental practice, like through us. So that was kind of an idea that we pursued, you know, private student loans. What if the Republicans win reelection and they make federal loans like capped? Well, then people will need a lot of private student loans to be able to finish their degrees. Let's get involved in that. You know, refinancing, like we already have the best deals in the marketplace. Let's double down on that and create even better content around that to try to get our page ranked at the same level as some of these bigger competitors that give zero bonuses to people. So that's that's sort of the the long-term plan. And, And that was working. Maybe it's still working. I just need a couple more reports to feel really confident about that. Well, I like that. I like I like where your head is at, though. You know, double down on what's working well, and then also think about you know where the horizon of your industry. You know, what is the trajectory? What are the potential areas that you might want to have a place be involved in already and kind of be a front runner there? Well, you don't have to chase everything. You know, you're known as as this Facebook ads expert. You know, and I'm and I'm sure you you know a lot about these other channels, right? But but you don't have to get involved in all those things when you could continue increasing your your revenue just by being known as, you know, even better in that sphere, you know? So, I mean, that's kind of what we've done is like, so we added an affiliate program for our consult service, right? So, you know, we're reaching out to people we think have kind of an alignment with their audience and what the people that need our consult services. And so we've added, you know, maybe 20% more consults because of that affiliate program. So we're hoping to grow that during this time of economic disaster because a lot of these affiliates that we're paying out so good might be suspending their programs. And we're something that at least, you know, tentatively looks like more people demand it during a recession than during not a recession, which is a, is a, a custom plan for dealing with their student loans to cut their costs. So we'll hopefully grow on that front, you know, maybe you know, affiliate and advertising and online courses was maybe 70% of our business before, you know, and then maybe consulting will be the majority of it, right? Back in the early days, like consulting was was like 80% of our business. And then it just got, consulting sort of grew kind of more 
more linearly and some of these other parts of our business grew exponentially, which again is like why I talked about having, you know, stocks and bonds in your business, different sources of revenue that are have different characteristics to stabilize your business. Yeah, I really like that. I think we all should take this time and figure out what those stocks and bonds in our businesses are and, you know, where we should cut back potentially, but then also where we should be focusing our time that's going to make the the sense over the long term. Totally. All right. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share, Travis? This has been a really insightful conversation. I really appreciate it. I would say track everything. So if you're not tracking things with Google Analytics or some custom report, just do that because that's how you scale. If you don't know where best sources of referrals are coming from and you don't know these things, how are you going to scale? You're just guessing, right? So I think that the people that really scale their businesses to the seven and eight figure levels just have really good tracking and know where to make that next dollar of investment really carefully. Any words of inspiration for those who are kind of feeling like hit from this or kind of just nervous about you know not knowing what's happening in their businesses and with their blogs? Sure. I mean, so in 2008, like a lot of the companies that are like the biggest companies in America now were a lot smaller, right? Like think about Amazon in 2008. I mean, Bezos is crushing it. You know, now he's the, one of the most valuable companies in the world, the richest man in the world, right? I mean, I'm not saying that that should be anybody's goal, but uh, but just realize that like, you know, a recession is kind of this time where a lot of the people whose business models like didn't have a good long-term path get killed off. And a lot of the people that have businesses that are really long-term businesses, like they do really well, right? And so if you follow a lot of the suggestions, I think that you and I have talked about, I think that a lot of these people will be set up for that. Uh, you know, another thing too, you know, imagine if they come out, come out with like a vaccine for this thing or like a cure or like we find out that it's seasonally goes away in the summer. Like the first thing, I don't know about you, but the first thing I'm going to do is go have a huge party with all my friends. Right. Right. I mean, like, and then I'm probably going to get on a plane to like Mexico or something or like Europe and like go see the Eiffel Tower, like with my wife, right? Like, like, you know, everybody's going to have like this huge pent up demand and and the economy is going to soar when this coronavirus thing gets behind us because once it's behind us, like everybody's just going to party and go spend tons of money again. I would just say to encourage you, like, look at the bright side. Like you have a lot of time with your loved ones that you will never have in this way again. Um, so enjoy watching like random movies from like the nineties and like, you know, having cheap wine and like eating lots of pasta dishes, right? And like, uh, I mean, this is just going to be one of those times that you're going to tell your grandkids about, um, oh, do you remember back in the day when we had this happen to us? I think that there's a really interesting study that looked at like the happiness of quadriplegics and in the first month or so, or several months, like people were super depressed. Like they, it was all, all focus on like the like negativity about what happened to them. But then after that period of time, like their happiness became the same level it was before because, you know, they just got used to the new normal. And I think that this has been such a jarring experience for all of us that like everyone is still not used to that new normal of being under house arrest. But eventually when we realize like, oh, like we have Netflix and we have plenty of food and like people are not riding in the streets, like people will get to this like level of happiness where they were at before. And then when the you know, the thing about despair is despair exists because there's also jubilation. And so when we have this thing get behind us, there's going to be jubilation. And I'm really hoping I don't get hit by a bus or COVID doesn't knock me off, you know, because I want to be there for the jubilation and the party and the celebration after all this. 
I love that. Thank you. That's such a great perspective. I really appreciate that. And I mean, that's something that I've been trying to hold tight to as well is like, how can I enjoy this time where my kids are home unexpectedly? And, you know, we, I'm spending more time with my husband in the evenings and just trying to cherish these times and thinking about how I want to look back on this once it's all over. So I think yeah. those really wise words. We just, yeah, mind. look at the top 10 for all the rentals and all the different platforms, right? Like I looked last night, it was like, uh, you know, Outbreak and like Armageddon and like <laughs> World War Z, like the, those are like the top rentals right now. So like, you know, maybe, maybe like, you know, alternate your apocalypse movies with like some like stupid comedy, you know, and, uh, and just try to laugh as much as you can. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Great. Thank you so much, Travis. This was such a really insightful conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to give a huge thank you once again to Travis for coming on the podcast. He was extremely generous with sharing his journey and his advice with us. And I'd love to hear your biggest takeaways. Share those with us in the comments at monicalouie.com slash 47 or tag Travis and me on Instagram. I'm at Flourish with Monica and he is at Student Loan Planner. You'll find all the links and resources that we mentioned in this episode at monicalouie.com slash 47. And thank you so much for joining Travis and me today. He and the team at Student Loan Planner are doing a great job with keeping people updated on how this pandemic is affecting student loan payments. So if you have student loans, be sure to check out studentloanplanner.com and we'll link to some resources in the show notes that will help you out. Also, just a reminder that I'm offering my introductory course, Five Days to Profitable Facebook Ads, for free for a limited time. It's a $79 value, and I know there are a lot of people interested in learning Facebook ads, and a lot of us have extra time on our hands right now. So if you are ready to learn how to create profitable Facebook ads, then consider this a gift from me. Just go to monicalouie.com slash five day course and enter code be kind as all one word. As I mentioned, I'll have all the links and resources that we mentioned today in the show notes, which you can find at monicalouie.com slash 47. And if you found this helpful, please leave a rating and review so that more people can find this podcast and subscribe so that you can be notified when the next episode comes out. Brand new episodes come out every single Thursday, and I've got many more helpful episodes coming your way, so subscribe so you'll be sure to get notified when next week's episode comes out. That's all for today. Take care and stay healthy. Bye for now. Bye for now.